0: Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Alma College Histories and Mysteries. This is Dr. Benjamin Peterson, and we have a fantastic episode for you today. I'm actually really quite honored that we get to have this on the podcast. Today we have an interview with Jane Keon. Um, If you don't know Jane, she has been one of the people who has been working with the Pine River Superfund Citizen Task Force to uncover the story of the PBB disaster and to make sure that bureaucrats and politicians actually try to do everything that can be done for the community of St. Louis. She really has a powerful account here that teaches well, certainly taught me so much about the power that a community organization can really have and how you can actually bring people together. I hope you will learn as much from this interview as I did.
1: This is Nikki Brabott. I'm a graduate student at Central Michigan University. This is an interview for the Michigan PBB Oral History Project. Today is Monday, February 11th, 2019. It is about 2.25 in the afternoon, and I am here in Jane's home in Alma, Michigan. So if you could just state your full name and your date of birth for me.
2: Jane Kian, and I was born January 30th, 1948. And do I have your verbal consent to record this interview today? Yes, you do.
1: All right, let's get started. We'll just start off Simple, just tell me about yourself. Oh, that's not simple.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can tell you that I've been involved with the uh, Pine River Superfund Citizen Task Force from the beginning. I'm one of the founding members. And, um, and then we've been in existence as a group for 20 years. And our work with Emory University on the PBB crisis follow-up started in 2013, or maybe it was late 2012 when they first, when we first were contacted them and then they came up here in early 2013. So it's been a long time,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so tell me about where you grew up. Were you always living at Alma? Um, I did grow up in Elma, in town, um, near the college, and um, my dad was a biology professor at at the college, and my mother had her master's degree in biology. So when my dad was getting his Ph.D., she would teach his classes for him. She had three little kids at home, too. I don't know how she did it, but she did. And... um, um, then when I when I married, um, we lived in Missouri, and then we moved back to southeastern Michigan, and then gradually worked our way back up to this area again. So I raised my children here uh, in St. Louis, um, north of St. Louis on the river, and um, downstream from the chemical plant, <laughs> and uh, and then now my my. Um, Four of my six grandchildren live in the area. Two of them are in Oregon, and the other four are in Elma, um, Elma, Mount Pleasant, Riverdale areas.
1: Yeah, that's really nice. Nice and close. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, what was your dad's name?
2: Lester Eyer. E y e r. And your mom? Elma. Was her first name, believe it or not, A-L-M-A? She didn't grow up here. She grew up in New Jersey, but married somebody from Alma, Michigan.
1: <laughs> and what was her maiden name?
2: Shermer, S-C-H-I-R-M-E-R.
1: And you said you had two siblings?
2: I do. I two have siblings? two brothers. Two brothers. Um, one's deceased now, but he uh, he was older, and then I have a younger brother, too. What were the names? Jerry is the deceased brother. Is that with a J? Yes. And David.
1: So you said one was older and one was younger?
2: Jerry was older, yep. So you're
1: the middle child? I'm the
2: middle child.
1: (laughs) So one older, one... So your mom grew up in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And then did your dad grew up around here. Mhm. Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: Great. He Thank was you. from Elma. Yep. Okay. So did they were their parents also from the area or were they
2: My dad's parents were from I? here. Uh, our family moved to Gratiot County in 1854. So Mama? um we've been here a long time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they were um, settlers. They had a a sale of land because there were they were worried that n- nobody was moving into Upper Michigan, and um, so it was affordable land. And so that's when my great great grandparents um, bought land up here and moved up here, wow. along with my great great grandmother's father. So three. Generations of that part of the family were in Gratiot County. Yeah. Wow,
1: yeah. that's almost hard to find anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So, what was it like growing up around here? What was your
2: well family like? M- m- my family was an outdoorsy family, um, and so we spent a lot of time on the Pine River um, and other outdoor areas. Um, skating, we used to be able to ice skate out here. Canoeing. Um, there, there was some swimming up this part. Nobody swam in St. Louis when I was growing up. They knew that it was polluted, but up here, um, upstream people swam. Um, yeah, so it was a a good upbringing and the, the thing that's interesting to me is, and I didn't figure this out until I was involved with the task force, um, but, My parents knew about the dangers of DDT poisoning for birds and for people um, before um, Rachel Carson's book was published, and I never could quite figure that out. But it turns out that when my dad was getting his PhD at Michigan State University, his PhD professor was Dr. George Wallace, who did all the research of Robins dying on the MSU campus from DDT poisoning. So that's how my parents knew about it in the fifties before the book came out, and I think it was 62 when Rachel's book was published. So so yeah, and they they went on my parents went on a lot of bird hikes with um, you know, well known people. Um, yeah, like Roger Torrey Peterson, who has the Peterson bird guides and all that. So yeah. And we went on bird hikes around here, too. And then one of my uh, first DDT memories, I have several, but one was um, El- the Elma College campus um, had dying elm trees, and they decided to spray DDT. And then the robins started dropping out of the trees. And so um, my dad organized early morning Bird walks to listen for robins to see how many we would hear. And and then then we found the occasional dead bird too. So I went on at least a couple of those with my dad and other community members and college students. And uh, yeah, so now that we aren't using DDT and the robin population has come back, um, on an early summer morning, you know, it's just, you can't even distinguish all the birds that you're hearing because there's so many. But back then, you would just listen and hear, okay, I hear a robin. Oh, I hear one over there. So it was it was very sad. But that was one memory, and then another one was my mom. Um, other, other neighbors decided to have their yard sprayed for mosquitoes with DDT and whenever that it was like um a tank hauled on a trailer behind a truck and when that came into the neighborhood she would get us into the house close all the windows and we would have to stay inside um other kids in the neighborhood were out while it was going on and then would run around in the white powder in their bare feet and um one of the little boys in our neighborhood Stopped growing, and it was right, it was after that. And he, um, I I don't know how how his life ended up. But while we lived there, um, he he never grew more than an inch or two, and he was very very small for his age. Yeah, his sisters were fine, but you often wonder. You just there's so many, so many people in this area that wonder if the things that happened health-wise in their family was connected with all the chemicals we were exposed to. And I bet you a whole lot of them were.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes I always wonder, like, what are we going to look back now? and I know. People are going to go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they did that.
2: I think they could cut the cancer rate 50% if, if um, a whole lot of these chemicals were just taken off the market. I really mm-hmm. do. So when PBB was being manufactured, I was married by then and, well, at least when the disaster happened, we were married and not living here. We were living down in Brighton at that time. And I had um, finished nursing my babies, so I didn't have that worry, thank goodness. Um, I remember when it came out in the newspapers that nursing mothers should not nurse their babies if because of the PBB problem, I thought, thank goodness, you know, that I didn't have to go through that. That would be awful, because you think you're doing the best thing for your child, and then you find out you're poisoning them. Oh, but uh, but we lived down there, and then we didn't. We moved back here in about 1975, so the chemical plant was still limping along at that point. Um, It it didn't close until 78, and I shouldn't say limping along. It was still in production, not of DDT and not of PBB, but of all their other chemicals that were bromine and chlorine-based. And where we lived, we were downstream from the chemical plant on the river, and you could go out in the morning sometimes, and it would smell like a swimming pool because they had dumped their chlorine overnight or dumped their bromine. And... um, yeah, not good for the river.
1: <laughs> Definitely not. So, tell me more about your husband. You can. You've mentioned him. Yeah. But when? Yeah. How did you meet your husband?
2: You know him. I do, okay. but they
1: don't.
2: <laughs> um, well, actually, he was he'd graduated from high school a couple of years ahead of me, but he was going to Alma College, and so he's around in the summers and. um we met one summer and and uh, fell in love, and that's all there was to it. <laughs> so I didn't, I was, then I went to Alma College for two years, but then he was going on to other, um, he went to osteopathic school in Kirksville for a while, down in Missouri, and so I we got married, and I moved down there with him. But then when we were back in Michigan, and my boys were, Weaned at least. Uh, I think Quinn was about one year old. I started back at Michigan State University because we lived down in that area then and finished my bachelor's and got my master's degree too. Yeah, And then we moved up here in 75 and I started teaching part-time at Elma College and raising my children and running my, our little um, family organic farm and... Um, yeah no chemicals for us, That's good. <laughs> although we live downstream from the chemical plant, <laughs> our chickens you know just wandered, they were allowed to be loose, and I'm sure they picked up down in the the woods was in a floodplain which is now going to be remediated by EPA so I'm sure we got plenty of DDT from um, the chickens eating all their wonderful little bugs and worms down in the woods <laughs> It'll be interesting to find out our DDT results. We're still waiting on those. Getting closer, though. Because I'm on the PBB leadership team, you know, so Mm -hmm. I get to know about these studies before everybody else does.
1: (laughs) So just going back really quick, so what year were you guys married?
2: 1968.
1: And you have three boys? Two boys. Two boys. Yep.
2: And what are their names? Dylan, D Y L A N, and Quinn, Q U I N N.
1: And when were they born?
2: Uh, Dylan was born in 1970, and then Quinn was born in 1971.
1: Sorry. And then they were they were born in Michigan mm-hmm. when you were, you had moved down up here by, by, by
2: Detroit. Okay. Yeah, in Detroit, actually.
1: What were your degrees in? You mentioned you
2: started at Alma, and then went to MSU. Mm -hmm. um, In English literature, the master's degree is in English literature. Um, Yep, so MA degrees, which allowed me to teach part-time at Alma College off and on for 29 years, so that was nice. Wow. Plus I had uh, a bookshop for a number of those years, downtown Alma, And... um, then after I um, sold the businesses, I started writing for newspapers part-time also. Then I wrote for the Grasha County Herald, The Morning Sun, and then Saginaw News. So I first met Ed Lorenz, who you know, who's uh, also on our uh, task force and the PBB leadership team. Um, In 1990, I was writing for the Saginaw News at that time, and Ed and a chemistry professor at Alma College had done a study um, involving um, the river sediments and the contamination, and I interviewed them for the newspaper. So uh, uh, that was when I first met both of them, and then they both um, turned up in 1997 when we started um, the task force, and, and they were founding members too. So that was cool.
0: It is really cool. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so tell me more about
1: the start of the CAG group and it, you know, really its purpose of being started.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, EPA. I have to go back a little farther because the you know when the chemical plant shut down, they signed a consent agreement with a whole bunch of federal agencies, um, and the state that let them off the hook. They didn't have to do much cleanup. They did a little, but not much. Um, they paid a, only a twenty thousand dollar fine for the pollution that they put in the river. That's very small. Very small, (laughs) even then. Um, And so they were allowed to leave. Everybody in town knew that the plant site was leaking, even though um, between 78 and, and in the early 80s, they had built a clay wall around it and put a clay cap over it. And at the time, and I wish I still had this newspaper article because I remember it so clearly, um, the reporter had interviewed people. Well, what do you think about how they've protected the town from this chemical site? Well, what'd they do about the bottom? Well, they just assumed that there would be a hard clay down there that would keep things in. And um, lots of people were skeptical about that. The law at the time required private people, at least, if they were going to have a landfill, to put a liner in it, a double liner with an alarm in between. So if one of the layers broke, then they would know and they'd go down and repair it. And this was essentially a landfill because all kinds of stuff had been hauled in there and buried there along with all the buildings and roads and stacks and pipes and everything. Um, But EPA exempted themselves from having to put a liner in. So first mistake. Um, And it turns out that the, the plant site leaked. It leaked downward into the groundwater, contaminating the city drinking water. It leaked outward into the river, contaminating the river. And so um, that that closure was done back in the early 80s, but the state um, DNR kept testing birds and mammals downstream, expecting to see their DDT levels dropping, but they kept rising instead. So... Finally, EPA came back in 1997. They had new techniques, a new boat, and they thought they would do some sampling out in the river, in the sediment, which they did. And so afterwards, they held a community meeting, a public meeting, to tell the townspeople what they'd found. Um, At that time, I lived downstream from the chemical plant, my thought was, I don't want them digging up stuff in town and they letting all that come down here. So I was against it. went to that meeting against it. <laughs> <laughs> and so during the question and answers, um, they kept talking about PPMs, parts per million, which I never heard that before, and it was new to me and most people in the room. And I said, I finally raised my hand, and I said, okay, how many... Parts per million DDT in sediment in a body of water does it take for you to come in and do something? And the number I recollect was 225 parts per million. I said, okay, so how much is out behind the dam? 36,000 to 42,000 parts per million. So I knew right then and there that Mother Nature could not deal with that. And... um, So then at the very end of the meeting, they had a sign-up sheet um, for people that were interested in forming one of these community advisory groups. And I signed up, Norm signed up, a whole bunch of people signed up. So we met then, that was in October of 97, and we met again in uh, December as a group then and chose officers and so forth. And then in January of 98, we incorporated ourselves as the Pine River Superfund Citizen Task Force. And it's a long name, mm-hmm. but we, we we were advised by EPA to call ourselves the Velsicol something or other. We said, we don't want to name ourselves after the, the polluter. So we thought, what do we want to name ourselves? Well, we want to name ourselves after the river and we're citizens. And it's a super fun site, and it's a task force. We'll be done in five years, so let's call ourselves a task force. That means, you know, there's a beginning and a middle and an end, and then you're done and you go on, (laughs) which makes me laugh now because here we are 20 years later and we're still going strong and have to be. You know, we've made progress, a lot of progress, but it's not done yet. So, So the project they did in the residential area in St. Louis in, I think they started in 2014 and finished in 2016 with that. Um, They were were cleaning up, digging up people's yards because of the DDT contamination, but also because of the PBB contamination. Uh, Several of the yards had PBB at levels in the soil that were above direct contact level. And so... um, that kind of gets lost because we keep talking about DDT because that was the um that was their main driving chemical that they, they used. But PPB was a problem too. And we know it's a problem in many places around the county because um not only did Velsicol dump it in different places, but the chemical itself was so um it just moved so well. It doesn't move well in soil, apparently, but as far as in the air, um, it it's just everywhere. And two interesting things. Uh, a researcher from Indiana was up here a few years ago, maybe 2012, and did a sample of tree bark, and he found... PBB, DDT, and other chemicals in the trees existing now, still in its bark.
1: Really? Yeah. Isn't that... That's crazy.
2: I mean, that's just hard to comprehend.
1: Yeah.
2: And then, um, and of course, you know about the robins, Mm -hmm. that one of our members, um, different times would say, you know, different years would say, "I, I found another dead robin in my yard, and so... She had talked to a DEQ person about getting it sampled, and she kept them in her freezer, but he never came. And then he, when he did come, they were been in there too long. So the next spring, she just gathered up three birds that she found dead in her yard and took them down to MSU herself. And um, actually, I think she went to the DNR toxicology lab. And the birds had very definitely died of acute DDT poisoning. And then when we hired uh, a toxicologist to do a study in the neighborhood, the birds he found um, had the highest levels of DDT in their brains of any birds ever found. And this is 40 years after they manufactured DDT. But it was in the soil of the yards, the, the worms... The birds were healthy when they came back. It wasn't like it built up over time in their systems. Came back healthy, found a mate, built their nests, even laid eggs, but they were eating the worms like crazy like they do in the spring, and then the parents keeled over dead. The eggs either spoiled or if some of the babies had hatched, they died in the nest because the parents were dead. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a horrible legacy. It did bothers me to think that for 40 years we were killing robins for all those years after after everybody else in the country knew that DDT was bad for robins and it stopped getting used everywhere else and here they stopped using it here but there was so much residual that it still killed killed robins healthy robins year after year mm. oh. So when they did the residential cleanup, we'd been telling them for years, please go check the high school athletic field. Because in 1986, we had a major flood in Gratiot County. And the athletic field is actually built on a floodplain, and it was inundated, about seven feet of water. And all the sediment from, um, you know, that had not been cleaned up at that point, settled onto it and and at the time i had remembered equipment you know like heavy equipment bulldozers and things down there during the cleanup process but i didn't know what they did with all the stuff that they dug up or whatever they did with it if they'd hauled it away or what Finally, um, EPA did go and sample, and they found that the DDT levels in the high school athletic field were also above direct contact level. And so finally, they dug up all the hot spots that they found out on the athletic field. And, and now, they, because of the latest fish study that was done, and the DDT levels are not going down in the fish, and in fact, they're rising in some, um they just this last year EPA has gone out now and sampled the river banks around the athletic field because they never did that. They just did the surface. And uh it looks like they're probably going to have to do more digging to get more of it gone. What a mess. What a what a horrible legacy to leave behind as a company mm-hmm. but they didn't care, honestly. When Michigan Chemical started I think it started with good people. They certainly hired a lot of good people, Um, although they were not perfect even then. They used the river as their dumping point. But they were just doing salt products and then, you know, some chlorinated products. They weren't doing these really bad chemicals yet. But, of course, they progressed to that. And, And then when Velsicol bought them out in the early 60s, which nobody knew about because the sign didn't change it still said Michigan Chemical Company on the on the factory um, but Velsigal was one of those companies that would take money out of these little enterprises that they bought and never put money back in. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the pictures of the chemical plant during um, the 40s and 50s and then look at it during the 60s and 70s you can just see that it's just getting run down. And, mm-hmm. The other PBB thing I was going to tell you was that um, at the first blood draw that we had in St. Louis, um, I was helping a lot of the elderly people because they came in with their paperwork from studies they'd been in. And um, and then, of course, Emory University had a lot of paperwork for them, too. And one of the guys um, had been the head of the lab over there at the chemical plant. And... um, he told me that the PBB just got into everything. They ended up renting space from Alma College for a lab because they couldn't do lab work on the plant site anymore because of all the PBB that was just getting into absolutely everything. And then one of the other guys I talked to, um, he had worked on the in the PBB facility manufacturing it, and his job, it would come out of the oven, essentially, these big kind of clear amber colored sheets like glass. And um, I know I know from my own research that sometimes it was pelleted, but a lot of times it was just powdered. And his job was as it was to break the sheets as they came off get them into these big cardboard barrels, and then crush. I said, were you wearing a face mask? Oh, no, they didn't provide anything like that. Mm-hmm. So here he was standing over these barrels, crushing up the PBB, and, of course, it was mm-hmm. dust. Just
1: breathing it in. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But it was interesting to know how it came off the line, that it was these, I think he said they were about three feet by three feet, and like a big pane of glass, but dark amber-colored and then breakable. Yeah. Inter- interesting, huh?
1: Yeah, I guess I've never pictured what it would look like before.
2: <laughs> well, and I only saw online photos of it in pellet form, and I thought, well, how how did they mix it up? At, I mean, how did they get confused about it at Battle Creek? Um, because I knew that the... Um, the um, magnesium oxide is a a reddish powder Mm -hmm. how could they think pellets would be the same thing as this powder when they were doing their big mix but if it came off as powder of a dark Mm -hmm. gold reddish bronzy color you can see how they could be confused and think it was mineral oxide Mm -hmm. especially
1: like they're just going through their motions and right. not looking at it really right. closely, like no, no one expected it to be wrong. So,
2: right. You know. Although one of the um, from the court testimony, one of at least one of the workmen questioned it, but his boss said, "Hey, throw it in." <laughs> but the boss didn't say he said that, but the guy <laughs> said he did. So, <laughs> whatever.
1: <laughs> so you've mentioned Emory. Um, how did? How did that relationship start with Emory?
2: Um, it was interesting. Uh, I think probably it was at our December task force meeting. Ed came, um, and he, maybe it was January. No, I don't know. It was it was probably December. But anyway, he was upset because his one of his students had seen this documentary on uh, TV in Grand Rapids. And he made a copy of it for Ed, and Ed watched it. It was all about PBB, and it never mentioned St. Louis, Michigan, or the chemical plant. And this is where it all started. Yeah. And so he said, I'm going to get a hold of those people. So he did. He got a hold of Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, And, you know, she's Wonderful. So they didn't have a contentious beginning He probably was fairly polite when he first spoke to her (laughs) Although he can get worked up And, um, And she was just thrilled to know She didn't know about this, you know And I guess at the same time And I didn't know this at the time But Norm came to some of our meetings And so I don't know if he heard about it He may have heard about it there or not He'll tell you but um then he went uh on his own and contacted michelle as well so she had two people from this area so so that's when they made the arrangement to come up here and meet with the task force um, executive committee and it was a very good meeting um, and we have just been going full tilt since then Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there i like
1: they're good people. Yeah. Michelle's, Michelle's very sweet.
2: Yeah.
1: So how, with everything, I'm thinking back to your book, um, I know that the group kind of started off maybe with some contentions from the community and a lot of distrust and keeping an eye on you and everything. Oh, yeah. How has that relationship, and then including an outside group from Emory, how has that relationship changed or hasn't changed.
2: Since oh, it's the changed. Um, at the very, very beginning, there were city officials involved with our task force, but then they kind of fell away, and we weren't real sure why, and then we started getting these funny responses from them when we talked to them, and, um, and then they took the stand that we were a problem because we were stirring things up. All these years, you know, from, say, 82 till 98, nobody had been talking so much about the chemical plant, the pollution, the river. And so people, businesses started to come back. um, People started to move into town, and they thought we were going to wreck all that by bringing it all up again. So we tried different things. you know, sit down meetings with them. I had the, the, the mayor had complained about um, the newspaper headlines, and so I made a, a lunch date to have him and the editor of the paper and myself all meet together. And that, and that helped so that we were all civil to each other. But at that point, we realized as a group, we know we're we're doing the right thing. We've got to just go ahead and do it. We can't take any more time to try to bring the city along with us. If they want to be against it, they can be against it. Well, it was years later, um, maybe 10 years later, when the mayor started to come to some of our meetings. And I was glad to see him, of course, and told him that. We we'd had remained, you know, had a civil relationship. And... I said, it's nice to see you here. And he said, well, I'm coming because I was told to. And I said, oh, who told you to do that? And it turned out it was Senator Carl Levin's aide, whose name I've forgotten now. But he said, if you want things to get cleaned up in in your city, you need to show right now how bad everything is so the EPA will deal with it. That includes not only the river sediment, but the plant site and anything else that you can find. So that's why George started coming to the meetings, and um, I, and he actually apologized to me. He said, "You guys were right, and I was wrong." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Wow, thank you for saying that. It's it's very good to hear, and I hope you'll keep coming and all that." And they did. Um, so that that they turned the page there, and then we all started working together. And we still, um, Jim Hall and I, and occasionally Gary Smith, we'll sit down with the city manager and the mayor and maybe one or two other other people um, frequently, if not every month, then every six weeks or so, just, just to make sure we're all still on the same page. Um, so then when Emory came in, uh, there was no no problem there. They Um, they could see what we had done and what we were doing. We could see what they had done and what they were doing, and we could see how it all would mesh. For years, I had gone and spoken to groups. I still go and speak to groups, but I had this um, pasteboard thing with all. Let me just show it to you. The recorder can't see it, but (laughs) I'll show you. So all of the projects that we had been working on and, and I could say, okay, now we've finished this one and, and this one's being worked on and so on. But then I'd get back here and I'd say, there's one thing here that we haven't had any luck with and that's getting a health study. And um, that all changed. When Emory came to town, um, we had all this information we'd collected all these years, you know, and then they had all their information, and it was like, wow, we can really do a partnership here. Mm-hmm. So that's how that started. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Very good for everybody. Yeah. And and again, you know, you hate having to hear all the stories of people's children and miscarriages and all the things that people have suffered with all these years from being exposed but at the same time, we're getting it out into the open. Mm-hmm. And maybe it won't it won't help most of the people, but maybe down the road it'll help some. That's our hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: how has I mean you come from a very biology-inclined yeah. family, but I know sometimes when Michelle and them talk, it goes way over my head. I have no idea yeah. what they're talking about. So how is these, how has this last 20 years been of learning this new science? <laughs> That's a great <laughs> question
2: because I majored in English. I, know I like books. I like writing. And um, I avoided science and math as much as possible all through school and college, both. So it's been a huge learning experience for me. Um, I decided early on, once we started the technical committee meetings, that I better go to those because of my lack of knowledge in the scientific areas. And I have learned so much chemistry and biology and geology, and it's been good. And then now I'm learning a whole lot of um, medical terms, you know, from Emory. Mm -hmm. It's good. Uh, But uh, it, it makes me laugh at myself. Who would have ever thought that I would be so involved in science and math and medicine, you know? I mean, it's like (laughs) I tried to stay away from it all. (laughs) Oh, it's good, though. It's all good.
1: And, I mean, not just with Emory, but you've really had to collaborate with the EPA and local governments. Yes, yes. How... Just tell
2: me about that experience. Oh, <laughs> EPA, oh my gosh. Now, uh, I, I looked on them as the white hat people at the very beginning. EPA was going to come in, clean things up, and we were good to go. That's how I thought it would be. Um, the very first project manager from EPA just seemed to want to fight, and our guys were willing to fight with her. We were fighting for what we knew was right. We don't know why she wanted to fight, um, but it was very contentious, and then she said, we're just going to leave town. We're just going to leave you with a mess. And that was kind of shocking that they could make that decision, I'm not sure they really could, but that's what she told us. So, but um, she moved along. We got another project manager um, who had different... uh, She was very good to work with for a long time until the uh, PCBSA. That's the the DDT byproduct that contaminated, that was a principal contaminant of the St. Louis drinking water. And when we learned that she'd known that our drinking water was contaminated for over a year before she told the mayor in very vague terms about it and, and assured him there was nothing to worry about, um, that really was a, a stumbling block for all of us. It was like, how could you do that? So she was removed after a while um and we we know now that she's in charge of a whole bunch of wonderful things. She's moved up the ladder like crazy, which oh my gosh, but anyway, the Peter principal at work, i guess and um so, and the same with our d e q project our m d e q person um we had. A shaky one. Um, then we got a good one for a very short time, and then all of a sudden the director of DEQ decided to swap out the one we liked with this guy from Kalamazoo um, that had been working on the Kalamazoo River. And it turns out that he'd gotten in trouble with the uh, companies down there. They didn't like him because we found out he was willing to. Butt heads with people and get things done. So he was our, proj- our DEQ project manager for a number of years, probably as many as 10, and we just really appreciated having him because he was not afraid to butt heads and to insist that things be done this way and not that way. Now here's the thing. Oftentimes when EPA goes in to clean up a superfund or to clean up a, a site, a contaminated site, there's a company there, like over in Midland, Dow is there. And so EPA keeps pushing Dow to spend the money to do it right. There's this, there's this push thing going on. But in our case, we're considered to be an orphaned site because the state and the federal government let Velsicol go without cleaning it up and signed off on everything that nobody can sue them or anything. So that means that we don't have a responsible party that can be pushed by EPA. It's taxpayer money paying for this. And they have budgets. EPA has budgets. They don't want, they're trying to not only stay within their budget but spend as little as they can to get things done. We don't care how much it costs as a community. We want it done right. So we're having to push EPA. Instead of EPA pushing a responsible party, the community has to push EPA. And so there's tension all the time, sometimes more contentious than other times. Um, It makes it hard. Um, It's not... And when we had the really good project manager, that took some of the pressure off us because he was pushing hard from the state level. Now we have a hard time getting the state of Michigan to advocate for us at all. They even don't come to our meetings very often. Um, so I've had face-to-face talks with the current EPA project manager about this very thing, and I said, he he came in and said, Oh, uh, When he came on board and said, just trust me, trust me. Well, we'd learned that (laughs) from way back, from the first cleanup, that you can't trust the agencies to do it right. And the community has to speak up about things. And we're the voice for the community. And I explained these things to him. Well, he doesn't ask us to trust him anymore, um, but he does... He doesn't always understand that we have to ask the questions. We have to see the documents. We have to know for ourselves that something's being done right. And he bristles at that. He doesn't like that. But that's what we've got. That's what we're working with. And we just keep on it going. (laughs) I was asked uh, by a sociologist years ago, probably nine years ago now. Um, how, how does your group just keep going? What, what's different about you? I said, I have no idea. I thought every group was like this, you know? And um, she said, no, uh, most groups that are gathered around a cause of any kind last no longer than seven years. It's, it's almost, it's like a rule in sociology. A group, a community group, you know, volunteers gathered around a cause, don't last any longer than seven years. And we were already at ten years at that point. And um, so she started doing interviews with us to try to figure out (laughs) what made us different. And I liked her one theory. She said, um, several of the people involved in our group not only have lived here their whole lives, but their parents came, mine were the earliest, my ancestors were the earliest, but a lot of them came in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and settled here. So she thinks that's part of it, that we just have our roots here, but also that we have the pioneer spirit. Isn't that interesting?
1: <laughs> I like that, the pioneer spirit yeah. is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what would you consider, maybe some of your biggest victories or maybe your biggest challenges with the the CAG group?
2: We have had a number of victories. Oxford Automotive, um, which isn't even part of the Velsicol site, but it was a a manufacturing plant upstream that dumped. And, of course, we are downstream, so all their dumpage came down our way into our part of the river. Um, when they were going bankrupt, we, uh, we, we, we figured, you know, they're going bankrupt, they're closing down. We never wanted to go after a company that had provided jobs in town, mm. but they were going bankrupt. So we decided, let's see if we can get some money out of them. And, um, so we filed a claim against them in court, um, and we, didn't, we weren't very specific about the claim, but we felt like um, it was worth it to try as a community group. And um, so we had a lot of hassle from other people that had filed claims. A, a lawyer for these other people would call us up, me and Ed harass us on the phone, um, because we had filed such a big claim that it wouldn't leave money for anybody else and all this. But we just ignored it. It's hard, but we did. And then it was time for a hearing at the bankruptcy court in Detroit. Ed couldn't go. He was elsewhere. So Gary and I went. And you probably read about this in my book, but I'm still going to tell the story. <laughs> so... Um, we, neither of us knew anything about what was going on. We got there early. We found the right courtroom because there's a ton of courtrooms in there. And um, then we went in for the hearing and um, we saw how it worked. You just went up in front by behind podiums. The judge said a few things and then you were done and you went and sat down. So we went up there and The Oxford lawyers were up there, three or four of them, and uh, the the Oxford lawyer immediately started saying, um, talking about our claim and how they couldn't, how it was ridiculous and how it's never been done and just on and on and on. And the the judge stopped her and said, um, I need to find out something first. And he said to Gary, Are you an attorney? And Gary said, No, sir. And he said to me, Are you an attorney? And I said, No, I'm just a citizen. And he said, Do you realize that to stand before a bankruptcy judge, you need to be an attorney? And we said, No. And Gary started apologizing. And the judge says, Wait a minute, wait a minute. And he talks to his clerk. And then he said, How would you like it if I gave you a pro bono attorney? And we said, okay. <laughs> he said, okay. So meanwhile, the Oxford attorney is literally pulling her hair and stomping her feet and screaming at the judge. I didn't know that was allowable behavior in a courtroom. Yeah. I was so polite. And, and she went storming out of the courtroom, and her retinue all followed her out. And... um so I'm standing there, and he says, I, I, the judge said, I, I want you to stay up here so that you, I, you can give my clerk your contact information. So I did, and my knees were shaking. And um, so then Gary and I left, and we could hear this woman in a conference room just screaming. <laughs> it was horrible. But he gave us a pro bono attorney. He didn't reject our claim. He just offered us help and we were flabbergasted so gary and i are driving home and we get ed on the phone and gary puts him on speakerphone and ed's saying what what i can't believe it he gave you a pro bono attorney i said yeah they're going to contact us and and we're going to work with them he said i can't believe it but anyway this the, they gave us two young attorneys and um they said we couldn't, they didn't think that we would have success as a, as a citizens group um, filing a claim, but individuals could, could have uh, depositions saying, um, I used to be able to use the river this way, but after Oxford Automotive dumped their waste in it, I could not do that anymore. My family couldn't. And so um, we compiled. Uh, they compiled, they they had individual sit-downs or phone sit-downs with all these members, took their depositions, and um, then we filed the claim. And even though we kept getting horrible things from the Oxford attorneys telling us what horrible people we were, we just hung in there. And Oxford wanted us to settle for pittance and... And we hung in there a little longer, and they wanted to do a little more. And Ed was willing to take it. and I said, I'm not. You know, we should we should be in negotiation. They shouldn't just be offering us stuff. They should say this amount, and then we should say this amount. So let's do that. They offered us seventy thousand. Let's say we want a hundred thousand. So they the Oxford ended up offering us a hundred thousand plus standing, which meant that, our claim really was valid, even though they could have just settled with the money, but to have standing um, was huge. And so we went with that. Plus, we had found out from our attorneys that um, because of something that happened way in the past with, with um, Oxford, before it was Oxford, um, that this was probably our best deal. So we took it. And then we heard from Sierra Club and all these others that you set a precedent. This has never been done before, that a citizen's group, you know, yeah, you had to have your individuals, but it was a citizen's group that won a bankruptcy claim for a river being spoiled by a company. So that was cool. That was a big victory. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And getting the radioactive site cleaned up um, was a victory. Um, All of Velsicol's documents, you know, show very small amounts of dumpage. But over the years, we've all learned that their their documents are not correct. Mm-hmm. So we expected more at this radioactive site than was there. But not only did they dump the radioactive waste, but against the law, they dumped chemical waste out there, too. So the the contract with the company, the environmental company that was cleaning up environmental waste, They couldn't do the chemical waste, so everything came to a halt. And some of the chemicals had been broken. Workers had inhaled stuff, and there was hospitalizations and all this junk. But um, our MDUQ project manager um, worked with EPA and said, you need to have an emergency, Uh, your emergency people come in and deal with the chemical stuff so that the radioactive stuff can continue. And they all worked together, and after years, it finally was completed. So that was a big, big completion, a big... Yeah, so I think we've had about eight or ten actual completions of things, counting the high school athletic field and the neighborhood and things like that. But it was very exciting this spring that they finally started the plant site, Mm -hmm. because that's the source of all this other, whether it was when the plant was in production or when it's just sitting there leaking, um, all of our troubles emanated from that. So now that they're finally addressing that, it's uh, very satisfying. Yeah.
1: yeah, Yeah, I feel like I came in at a weird time because, like, they were just starting that. It's so, like I haven't known anything
2: yeah. else. It um, took, took a long time for them to get <laughs> to that point. I bet. They didn't even want to look at that as it being leaking. We had to convince them. We used our money to hire uh, uh, public sector consultants, they're called. We hired them years and years ago, back when Ed was chair, to um, just look at all the EPA and MDEQ documents about the plant site and determine from those if the plant site was leaking. And their report came back and said the plant site is very definitely leaking. So then with that report in hand, we could convince MDQ and and EPA to begin a cleanup. Mm -hmm. That was a long time ago. We're finally starting the cleanup.
1: (laughs) I guess in your opinion, how do you think that cleanup is going? Like, is it going...
2: I think the one acre that they've done of the fifty two uh, I think that went very well um will they'll they'll be doing confirmation sampling um when the ground's a little cooler, and it'll be interesting to see but um that was another thing we wanted was a website where we could actually see um up to date data as it was produced at with this thermal destruction method. And they did provide that, and um, it was very interesting to watch. And so because we have seen it over, over the course of the process, all the data, um, those of us in our group that read those charts are pretty confident that it really did work. So we're glad about that. And then when we were told about how um, maybe... We, we could uh, EPA could get the same company to move from this one-acre spot up to the three-acre spot where the DDT was manufactured and not go home and come back, you know, demobilize, remobilize. Um, we wrote a letter to um, the administrator in Washington, D.C., the EPA administrator um, saying we were in favor of that and copied all our, our Congress people too. Um, because it it was not an easy thing. Government contracting, they don't want sole source contracting. They want to bid it out all the time. And so Tom is very good at this kind of thing. He and his group um, managed to, to work it out so that this same company got the contract, so they will only have to move a matter of uh, an acre or two north, you know, rather than... Go all the way home to wherever they live and come back with their equipment. So that'll save at least a million dollars.
1: Wow! Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's good. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, this is kind of going back, but I forgot to ask. Um, So with Emory, I've heard from other people, at least their confusion as to why Emory in Atlanta is a part of this. So. How has that maybe been an issue or not an issue, the relationship with them, since they are, like, really kind of outsiders coming from
2: yeah, true. Atlanta? Um, well, with our experience with um, the state of Michigan, um, we were not happy. I mean, we we weren't a group then, but in the 90s they dropped the chemical workers, or actually earlier, I think, they dropped the chemical workers from the study, and we did not think that was right. Um, Despite the fact that we knew the chemical workers had been exposed to a lot of chemicals, not just PBB, but so had all the townspeople, too, you know. Um, And so are farmers, for heaven's sakes. They used DDT on their farms long ago. Um, So, and then we had also tried to initiate a blood spot study. You know, they collect the little blood spots from newborns and saved it on cards. And Michigan was one of the first states to do that. And they had cards going all the way back into the 60s. So we wanted to have a study um, comparing the blood spots. First of all, if DDT could be detected in them from the early 60s to you know present day, all the way through the decades. And state of Michigan started destroying the blood spot cards, uh, supposedly because of privacy issues. But uh, it was just devastating to us that they were doing that. So this was long before Emory came on board. And um, we wrote letters. Other, other. We've learned later that other research institutes wrote letters, and they finally stopped destroying them. But still, they had destroyed all the way into the early 80s already. Uh, And then when our group was young, before Emory came on board, um, Ed and I and some others had a conference call with retired health department, state health department people, um, asking about things having to do with the PBB records, um, all of that era, and they told us quite plainly that um, you're probably not going to find those because um, because of all the controversy, a lot of those records disappeared so we we didn't have a very high regard for the state health department's handling of things at that point. and then when we heard from I think it was our um, MDEQ project manager told us that um, the state had stopped doing the PVB study and that uh, researchers in Emory University were doing them. And we read a couple of the studies, I think the breast, uh, breast cancer study and maybe the, um, the early puberty study. And um, thought we were just glad that they were still doing the research in PBB. That was our our main our main takeaway from that. Um, so that's the ground that was laid, um, and and then when we found out, you know, we actually made contact with them. It was smooth sailing right from the start because we're we're glad that they're doing the PVB research mm-hmm. as part of the health, you know, that we couldn't get anybody to do with a health study, and now and we really tried from the very beginning. I think it was early as '99, we applied for an NIEHS grant ourselves for a comprehensive health study. Then um, we got an MSU professor to help us write a second grant. A uh, proposal that narrowed it down. We were just going to do, I think, thyroid, at that point, and um, and the responses we got were, uh, you've never had a health study done, so it, you, we can't let you do a health study. You know, it was like it was a, it was like a catch twenty two because nobody's ever done a health study. There's no data, so you you can't yeah. Didn't make sense to us, but. And then the other thing, then we have, um, applied ATSDR, CDC, different years, and we were told, well, your population is too small for a, for a comprehensive health study. Yeah, because you have to have 100,000 people, and you've only got 40,000 in the county, and when you know not all of them. It's, it's just your little 4,500 people in St. Louis, and so that's not enough people. We're glad Emory doesn't worry about those things. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Have you ever been tested
2: yourself? Yes. yes. Um, my PPB is is not monstrously high. I was living in Brighton then. So we were still buying hamburger milk, you know, all the things that were on the shelf that had PPB in them. So that's how we probably got exposed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but um yeah, but it's it's it's, a, it's a higher than the national average. That's for sure. So um, I don't remember now what it is, but um, and I'm going to be interested to see what my DDT levels are too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I just lost my train
1: of thought. Um, don't know. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, I really. Blanked out there. That's
2: hard. It happens.
1: <laughs> um, oh, there we go. Okay. Um, so since you probably, or I can maybe assume that you got um, contact with PBB through ingesting food, did that really? Did that change the way you looked at food in the future yes. or even now? Yes, yeah. it
2: did because I thought, okay, we're going to moved to this nice farm, have our own organic garden, our own organic fruit trees, um, and, and we did, and raised our children that way. We had our goats. I raised all our own milk, eggs, vegetables, fruits. Um, we bought meat, but we did raise rabbits, and so we had rabbit, chicken, um, occasional goat, pig meat. But um, we did buy hamburger. Um, but yeah. then we find out that the floodplain is contaminated and our chickens are down there eating it, so then we're eating their beautiful-looking eggs. But, uh, so who knows? But, no, it did. Um, it, was, it was awful to think that not only had I eaten it, but we'd been feeding it to our little boys, you know? Who knows what's out there now? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Did it change any other parts of your lives? Maybe not even in super major ways, but...
2: Well, you certainly... We certainly were more aware of it, especially when... Norm was, you know, working at the state health department when all this was going on, and so we knew a lot that way. And then um, uh, living in St. Louis, where, you know, the mix-up happened and where everything was produced, that kept us more aware of it. I think all of us, just like the city officials used to be, we would have liked to have just had that be part of our past. Mm -hmm. But obviously the Robins have proved it was not part of our past. It continued on with us. So I'm just really glad to be part of this uh, cleanup. Um, I hope I live long enough um, to see it done. You know what Phil Ramsey says sometimes. You know who Phil is—a really old guy. Mm-hmm. He says they're just waiting for us all to die off, and then they'll disappear again. <laughs> Talking about EPA, you know. <laughs> but but we have lost a number of our members to death. They got old and they died, or they got sick and they got di- and they died. And um, I I guess I personally feel that they're still rooting for us. They're still. Praying for us that and helping us in any way they can to get this done because uh, if we don't do it, who will?
1: Yeah, like especially it's still to me it's such an unknown event, and even in like I, I mean, I grew up in Midland, and like I never yeah. knew about this, and my family yeah. members that were alive at the time have such a low knowledge of it, and so. I mean, yeah, I mean, hopefully this still continues on because people don't know about it, then it will just right. disappear into history. And right. I don't want to see that happen. And, and,
2: and it's disturbing that it, a lot, not a lot of it is in history books. I mean, I spoke at a class at MSU a number of years ago, um, an environmental history class, and they had a textbook, and so I had some time before the class to look at it. And it was about all these various environmental catastrophes that had happened, Love Canal and different ones. Mm-hmm. Not a single mention of the PBB disaster in there, nothing. And was that because, I think I think part of it was because it happened before Love Canal. Love Canal is kind of the big one that people started paying attention then. And this had happened, PBB had happened before, but I also think it shows how well our state government covered it up. They really did a good job
0: mm-hmm.
2: of covering it up and um, criticizing the people that, that brought it to the forefront, you know. And they mm-hmm. did a good job. And if you read Edward Chen's, Edwin Chen's book, a uh, couple of really nasty things that are... Department of Agriculture was trying to pin on different ones. Halbert, they tried to pin on him lead poisoning that um, um, he couldn't sell his milk because it was poisoned with lead, but his, his milk had already been tested elsewhere and it was not, there's no lead in it. And then another farmer, they they tried to do something like that too, just criminal stuff, I think, nasty anyway. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) So did we get through all
1: your questions? Yeah, I think so. Good. Good. Well, I guess a question I have is, what do you hope that, in doing this interview, what do you hope people will learn from your story? Hmm. Whether that be students or government officials or policymakers or anybody.
2: I just hope it scares them and makes them angry enough that they start taking preventative measures and and, um, um, making them look foolish and all that sort of thing. Among those preventative measures is why do we have, you know, the human pharmaceutical companies, they have to do all kinds of tests to make sure that they're... Product is not going to injure. There are side effects, but do no harm is part of their thing. Why do we allow chemical companies to make anything they want, throw it out there in the environment, and let people and animals be their experiments on it? Why don't we require them to spend the money to experiment in their labs first? to make sure it's not harmful to people before it's allowed out into the world. I think if we could correct that, we would see so much better health among wildlife and people both.
1: I agree. All right. Well, is there anything that you want to add that I didn't ask? I know we covered a lot of stuff. Um, Is there anything else... Any other experiences or anything you want to add?
2: You know I could talk all day, but <laughs> no, I think we covered it pretty well.
1: Okay. <laughs> all right, well, if that is it, um, thank you for meeting with me today. I appreciate it. My yeah. pleasure. Thank you yeah. for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs>